Well, Father, we come before you, and the great privilege that we have is to behold our God. And Father, we live in a world that continually rejects him, mocks the idea of him, ridicules those who do believe in you. And Father, we thank you for the revelation that has been given to us, specifically through Jesus Christ and even more specifically through his word. And as we address this area of unbelief and belief, I pray that you will strengthen our faith. In Christ's name, amen. Well, over the years, I have had the privilege of sharing with many atheists, and often the, uh, the discussion that I have with them will escalate to a challenge from them where if the God you say is true and real, and if he loves me and he wants me to follow him, why doesn't he give me some sort of sign, some proof? How would you respond to that? Well, I kind of take the bait and I say, well, what kind of proof would you like? Well, maybe he can peel back a cloud and wave high, or, or perhaps come down, say very clearly to me, I am God, and do a few miracles to verify his existence and and, and then I'll believe in him. And, and you see the trajectory that it's going, right? I, I'm not just some sort of infidel here. I have honest objections to the reality of a deity. I, I am an intellectual pilgrim on the search for truth. And if I had more proof, I would be proof positive And then I would become a follower. So what do you think about that? Do we need proof, or how much proof do we need? Jesus gave lots of proofs as to the reality of him being the Messiah, and it was met with skepticism that we see in Luke eleven fourteen through 16. Now, as he was casting out a demon that was mute, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now we see two groups of people here. One are impossible cynics. Jesus does a miracle. They say, sure, that's a miracle, but you did that by harnessing the power of the devil. And then other people said, okay, that's a miracle, but what else you got? Can he give maybe a, a, another sign and give us further proof so that we can be proof positive that you are indeed the Messiah. And Jesus addresses that mindset in Luke eleven twenty nine through 36. This is our text for today. After talking about how he's not in league with the devil because a house divided cannot stand. After talking about just the, the peril of the empty soul... People who seek relief without belief, those who are rejecting him are going to be rejected by God forever. He addresses a mindset that demands proof. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. 
The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that, it, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, the whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. This is Jesus' answer to those who want to be proof positive. It's also the answer to a larger question which the readers of the Gospel of Luke may have. You know, Jesus did all these signs and all these miracles, and you'd think that everybody would believe. So why didn't they all come to faith? Why did the very nation that greeted him and welcomed him and hoped for a Messiah reject him in the end? Well, they would say there wasn't enough proof. Now, truth be known, proof positive is an impossible standard, right? There is not enough proof out there to be proof positive that we can believe with 100% certainty that God is real and that Jesus is the Christ. Now, before an atheist gets all excited about me saying that, there is certainly not 100% proof, you can't be proof positive, that is all false. And if you are an atheist... You won't know that you're proof positive that it all is a fraud until you die, and even then you won't be conscious enough to enjoy it. So perhaps the standard shouldn't be proof positive, but what do you do with the proofs that God has given you? How do you handle the proofs, and how do you take them in a positive light? Well, from this passage, we see that there's really four... four um, commands or prescriptions you need to heed to be positive about the proof so that you accept it instead of reject it. Number one, you do not demand proof. Accept the God's provision of proof and fear rejecting the proof, then rightly perceive the proof. Now, this will serve us well because at some point in time, and, and this is not for everybody, some of you, you, you've thought about it, you considered it, you have all the proof you need, Jesus is the Messiah, you're 100% committed to that fact, and you live it out. Others might be on the fence where you're not quite sure if you want to go all the way into this, and others, uh, perhaps you'll have some internal reckoning where you'll have to really think through, do I really believe this or not? How do I account for the proof? How do I know that all of this is true? Well, to know if it is true is not necessarily the problem with the proof, but the problem is with the perception of the proof, as we'll see. It's not that people can't believe so much as they won't. It's the decision of the will. It's a conscious rejection. And many people hide behind a demand for proof, like it's God's fault that they don't believe, where biblically speaking, it's your fault if you don't believe. The proof is there. So how do you have a positive perception of the proof? It begins by refusing to demand the proof. Do not demand proof. Look at verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. Kind of a strong statement, isn't it? 
the generation that he does all these miracles for, the one that has been chosen before the foundations of the earth to be the one to bear witness to the miracles of the Messiah. Why are they an evil generation? It seeks for a sign. It seeks for a sign. You look at all the miracles that Jesus performed, feeding at the 5,000, and then an encore performance of feeding the 4,000, casting out demons, healing the sick. He's raised people from the dead. He did all of these miracles, and at the end of it, they're asking, what else you got, Jesus? What else you got? And this is actually one of the themes that we see in the Gospel of Luke. We're introduced to it when Zechariah is in the temple. Remember Zechariah, John the Baptist's father? He was chosen to serve in the temple, and while he's serving, an angel appears in the temple. The angel identifies him as Zechariah. He knows his name, and he tells him that your barren wife will bear a son. And Zechariah asks, this glorious angel in Luke 1.18, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. He's asking this angel who supernaturally appeared in the temple, who is in a glorious state, who knows his name, He's asking this angel, can he give me a sign? Clearly, the angel is the sign. Remember when Jesus was being tempted by the devil? The final temptation reads like this in Luke 4, 9 through 12. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put your God to the test. Right? If you're the Messiah, then God will not allow you to die, so go ahead and try skydiving without a parachute, and let's see what happens. Right? The idea of testing God is God. I'm not sure if you are who you say you are, so what I'm going to do is put you to a test to see if you pass it. Now, when you test someone, it presumes that you have the authority to test and the authority to grade the test and perhaps to retest Richard Dawkins, probably the most famous atheist in the world, was asked, what proof, by the way, would, you change, would cause you to change your mind, right? What sign would you like? And this is what he said. That is a very difficult and interesting question because, I mean, I used to think that if somehow, you know, a great big giant 900-foot-high Jesus with a voice like Paul Robeson suddenly strode in and said, I exist and here I am, but even that, I actually sometimes wonder if that would. Right, what would it take to prove that God exists to you? Well, if a 900-foot-high Jesus spoke to me in a deep, resonant voice and said, here I am, that, no, I actually want something else. Can you do something else, God? Right? You're not passing my test. Here's some more hoops you need to jump through before you have the privilege of my faith. 
right? You're really making three assumptions about God when you, when you put him to the test. One, God only exists if I perceive him to be real. Two, for God to be real, he must answer my command. And three, for God to answer your command, he's somehow subservient to you. Now, when you test God, does that God exist? The answer is no. God will not be put to the test. God puts you to the test. That's the way it works. So when you demand a sign, when you seek a sign, when you say, God, you have to prove it to me, that is already the first step of unbelief. You demand a sign, make demands on God, say, this is the way it needs to be. You presume authority that you do not have. Do not seek for a sign. Secondly, accept God's proof. God does give signs, by the way. He gives abundant proof. He tells him in verse 28, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Right? Jesus does promise a sign. He's going to give a great and glorious sign. The sign is going to be the sign of Jonah. Jonah is the sign. Now, one of our favorite Bible stories was Jonah. We had this rhyme Bible storybook that is all in verse, and you can actually sing the story of Jonah to the theme of the Beverly Hillbillies. It was really good. I used to do it all the time. I, I will spare you and not humiliate my wife by doing it in front of you. Don't tempt me. Well, the idea is that Jonah is a prophet of God who is sent to go to Nineveh, which was basically like the Hamas of Israel at that time. And he said, no way, Jose. And he goes the exact opposite way, running from this prophetic call. So God says, oh, no, you don't. I'm paraphrasing here, right? <laughs> Sends a storm that rages, and the sailors are trying to do everything they can to survive. And Jonah says, listen, I'm the reason for the storm. Throw me into the ocean, and it will stop. And they do, and he is enveloped by a great big fish. Maybe it was a whale shark, maybe it was a whale, maybe it was some agent of God's special creation. But then he's in this belly of the fish, and he is transported to the nearest point so that he can resume his prophetic ministry to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is an interesting place. It's literally entitled Fish Town. And it was on the decline. It grew rapidly, had a period of stability, but then through internal strife and the threat of foreign armies, they were on the brink, and everyone was very nervous. And all of a sudden, this man shows up who is clearly a Hebrew by his speech and manner, and he also has patchy skin and is missing some hair. And you're wondering, what's up with this guy? And then he tells you this story. He's come to fish town via the belly of a fish. He was in there for three days and three nights, and now he's here preaching that judgment is upon you unless you repent. And they did. But what's interesting is Jonah didn't necessarily do miracles. Jonah was the miracle. 
He was the sign. And so when Jesus says, the sign of Jonah, he is the sign. And then he elaborates on this in Matthew 12, 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So for three days and three nights, Jonah was incarcerated in fish flesh in the same way for three days and three nights. And that's just a euphemism for the day. And any part of the day counts as a day in Hebrew reckoning. He was three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, incarcerated by stone and dirt. And just like Jonah was brought back to life from certain death, so Jesus is brought back to life from actual death. That is the sign, the greatest sign. And what's really interesting is that Jesus makes it clear that I'm going to give you this sign and you won't believe it. As we keep on going through the Gospel of Luke, this will probably be a year before I get to this text at the rate I'm going. In Luke 16, you have the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where Lazarus dies and he goes to Abraham's bosom. The rich man dies and he goes to the equivalent of hell and they have this conversation with each other. And the rich man begs Abraham to send somebody back from the dead to warn his brothers to avoid this fate. And Abraham says in Luke 16, 31, but if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It's not that they can't believe, it's just that they won't. So when Jesus did rise from the dead and there's an empty tomb, how did the authorities respond? Well, Matthew 28, 11 through 15, while they were going, the disciples Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place, right? That there's an empty tomb here. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. They were given the sign of Jonah, and they paid to hush it up. Right? There is abundant proof. A man rose from the dead, and yet that is not enough. They won't accept the proof that's given to them. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about this later on, but, but the resurrection is proof. Creation is proof. If you don't accept it, it's really on you, and God actually holds you accountable to it. Which brings us to the next point, fear rejecting the proof. Look at verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment from the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This is a reference to the queen of Sheba, who heard about the greatness of Solomon and traveled from modern-day Yemen around up Arabia and down into Israel 
a 1,200-mile journey. And when she was there, she was awed by the majesty of Solomon. She asked him question after question after question and confirmed what everyone knew, that this man was gifted with divine wisdom. Seeing was believing for her. And Jesus says that this queen of the south will stand up in the judgment and condemn you. And get this, Israel, something greater than Solomon is here. The queen of the south, she traveled 1,200 miles in ancient Near Eastern conditions to hear Solomon. This generation has him right here. The queen of the south came to hear Solomon's wisdom given by the Lord. The queen of the south heard Solomon's wisdom, which was of the Lord, but mediated through an imperfect man, right? This generation heard the wisdom of God mediated by a perfect man who lived out that wisdom. The queen of the south gave Solomon lavish gifts. This generation gave him nothing and took what little he had. The queen of the south received no invitation to follow Solomon, and yet she came, and here Jesus invites all to follow him. The Queen of the South converted with lesser light, but the men of this generation with greater light refused to heed the clear teachings of Jesus. The problem is with them, not the amount of light. He switches to the men of Nineveh in verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. All right, this generation was addressed by the Son of God. The men of Nineveh were addressed by a minor prophet. The men of Nineveh were addressed by a reluctant prophet who was not their biggest fan, and it was actually rooting for their destruction. The men of this generation hear from a perfect man, the second person of the Trinity, who cares and loves them. This generation hears a message of grace and forgiveness. Jonah shared the message of judgment. This generation saw a glut of miracles, while the men of Nineveh believed the testimony of a miracle from Jonah, but didn't actually see miracles in their midst. This generation was given the sacred scriptures. The men of Nineveh had no such privilege. And at the judgment, the men of Nineveh, who repented long ago, will stand in judgment over this present generation. I, I fear for those who grow up in the church, hear the privileges of great teaching, have access to a wide variety of books, can look at YouTube sermons of the greatest apologists of this age and then go off, get into secular religious theory or perhaps do a deep dive into scientism and decide that there's not enough proof. Those indigenous people who are converted by simple missionaries will rise up in judgment over those people. Too much is given, much is required. He's given us abundant signs and if you reject it, it's on you. See, ultimately, you need to rightly perceive the proof. The proof is out there. You've got a perception problem. That's what it comes down to. Turn with me to Luke eleven thirty-three. 
No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your light is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, the whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. And if your whole body is full of light, having no part, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays give you light. So he offers three proverbial sayings about one of Jesus' favorite metaphors, which is light. It begins with the, what I call the teleological purpose of a lamp, right? A, a lamp, if you kind of know all the pictures, it, it looks like a teapot where one little snout has maybe a wick and then you pour the, pour the oil into the bigger, uh, bigger hole. And the purpose of the lamp is to give light to the house. It's, it's not to be a paperweight, right? No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Jesus is the light and he never hid his ministry. He was out in public doing miracles in public. He was able to feed 5,000 people because that's how large the crowds were. The parables, the teaching, the miracles were available for everyone. There was no lack of light. So why didn't they receive it? They had a perception problem. Verse 34. Your eye is a lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, the whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your, your, your body is full of darkness, right? Our, our eyes are the channel by which we perceive sight. If something is wrong with your eyes, it impacts how you can live and operate in this world. If a surgeon has bad eyes, he can't properly operate and save a patient's life, right? If a, if a pilot has bad sight, he can't fly an airplane. If a referee has bad sight, he might miss a critical offsides call that cost the Jayhawks a game. <laughs> it happened last week, but I haven't forgotten about it. Right? If the, if the eyes are bad... It impacts everything about you, right? So Jesus is making it clear that if you have proper eyesight, you can perceive reality as it really is. If you have proper eyesight, if your eyes are rightly calibrated, you can see the proof for what they are, and it will facilitate belief. And then he says something very interesting he says, therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. The reason why people have bad eyesight is because they choose the darkness. They reject the light that's clearly given to them. Classic example, Jesus casts out a demon, a mute man is able to speak, and people conjecture he does this because he harnesses the devil's power. He does a miracle to prove that he liberates the captives and gives sight to the blind, speech to the mute, and they say he's in league with the devil. 
You see, it's possible to, to structure your life and the way you live your life so that you don't want to believe. For instance, you ask a friend of yours, so are you going to become a Christian? They say, no. Why? There's not enough proof. Well, what kind of proof would you like? Would you like maybe uh, some sign like a resurrection? Yes. Okay, well, Jesus was resurrected. Well, how do I know? Well, it was written down. Okay, how do we know that it was written down properly? Well, if Jesus rose from the dead, then surely he can arrange for it to be written down properly. Well, that's just one person saying it. Well, there's actually four Gospels in the Apostle Paul. Oh. Well, what about unbelievers? Why wouldn't they write it down? Because they don't believe in it. Why would they write it down? Well, it's not scientifically provable. That's the whole point. It's a miracle. Well, why couldn't they videotape it? <laughs> well, if they did, you know deep fakes these days. I mean, truth be known, I can't prove my existence to somebody who's super cynical. The problem is their perception is that they, it's not that they can't see it, it's that they won't see it. They won't see it. And they're not the only, this generation is not the only generation where that happened. Jesus' contemporaries. Remember the wilderness generation? I mean, next to the people during Jesus' time, they saw more miracles than any other generation. They were present when God sent the ten plagues upon Egypt. They saw everyone. They knew what happened. They saw the pillar of fire that led them out of bondage. They were there when the Red Sea parted and then closed on the Egyptians. They ate the manna that came from heaven. They drank the water that was supernaturally transformed. They did all those things. And yet when the spies told them, the people are too big, there's no way we can take them. God let us out here to die. They dropped belief in God like a bad girlfriend. Oh, we're done with this. Why can't we go back to Egypt? We like our old ways better. And this is what Paul says about why they did it. Now, these things took place as examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. Why didn't they believe? Because there's something wrong in here. There is a desire for evil. They don't want to believe. It's not that they can't. Ultimately, it's because they won't. Well, you think, well, the wilderness generation had all those signs. Jesus' generation had all those signs. We don't have signs. Well, we do. I'm going to give you two of them. The first sign, the first source of signs is Scripture. John 20, 30 through 31. John writes this, this story, this history about Jesus, and he says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote about all these signs so that you know enough to believe. And if God can raise Jesus from the dead, right, which is a very difficult thing to do, 
I'm pretty sure that he can accurately convey history through men. That he can actually speak revelation, right? Lesser to the greater, it's easier to write scripture than to raise somebody from the dead, right? It's all in there. It, the scriptures are the signs. Well, I want something I could see. Romans 1, 18 to 21, creation. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. I remember talking to uh, an atheist as I was doing some contact evangelism in Santa Monica. It's kind of wild out. It's out in California. It's strange, wonderful, exhilarating all at the same time. And as I was talking to this guy, he explained to me that he's an atheist and said, you're not an atheist. He's like, oh, I am. And I read him this passage. And I pointed out to him, if you go hiking and you see three stones stacked on top of each other, what do you conclude? Somebody stacked them. What's more complex, three stones stacked on top of each other? Or the fact that you and I can actually have a conversation with each other. We're living, we're animated. You can see me because of your eyeballs. You can process the information through your ears. You can articulate it through your vocal cords and tongues. I mean, your creation. Do you know what he told me? He said, okay, you're right. I do believe in God. I just want to keep on smoking weed. That's what he said. That's what he said. You see, a lot of times, people know that God exists, but they don't want to. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They chose the darkness. You see, sometimes people choose the darkness because they choose to live such a way that they are hardened and become even more hardened to the truth. Somebody lives with their girlfriend or their boyfriend. They have this relationship and they have no plans of getting married and then they hear the gospel and that you are to turn from your sin, which would include sexual morality, and they're like, I can't do that because they are locked in with this relationship. And they might hear the teaching of God's sexual ethics and, and they'll say, well, what about this and what about this? And they believe that God's teaching on sexual ethics is cruel and evil, therefore they reject it all. And what is good and what is light becomes darkness to them because they made it darkness. Or somebody has been hurt in the past. Perhaps they have been abused. And they hear about the Lord's prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And they don't want to let it go. And so they tell themselves that this call to forgive has been used to facilitate abuse. It's actually an oppressive doctrine. And what is light becomes darkness, and they call it darkness. You cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul. When you start calling God's commands evil, you're letting the darkness take hold. Be careful. 
right? Be careful. Be careful lest the light in you be darkness. But if then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays give you light. So you choose the light. You allow the light of, of Christ's teaching to invade every aspect of your life. This actually builds off of the blessing that Jesus gives in Luke eleven twenty eight. 28. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You open yourself to God's truth. You allow God's truth to shine on the dark areas of your life and when it is identified, you repent, you change, and you face the light. That's why right practice leads to right belief. If you have a commitment to wrong practice, you will not believe. Jesus says in Luke 7, 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. If you're unwilling to keep his word, if you're unwilling to be transformed, you will never believe, not because you can't, but because you won't. But when you yield your life to Christ's teaching in faith and you follow him, he says in verse 36, you will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Notice, when someone imbibes a light and is transformed by the light, they become bright. They emanate light. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 16. A positive disposition towards the truth, when you're willing to, it will change, it will transform you, and God will use your transformed life to transform other people as well. Faith fuels obedience, and obedience fuels faith. We're saved by faith, but the faith transforms and changes. One way to fortify your faith is by obedience. That's why when people are in sin and they know it, they have a crisis of faith. Well, no wonder. You're choosing the darkness. You're pushing away the light. You're hardening your heart. But when you soften your heart, your body is full of light. You are changed and transformed. See, ultimately, the reason why people don't believe is not because they can't, but because they won't. Now, when I share the gospel with somebody who is on the fence about believing, I'll, I'll ask this question. If I can prove absolutely that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that he died and rose from the dead, that you must believe in him, turn from your sins and follow him to have eternal life, otherwise you will perish, if I can prove all of that in five minutes, at the end of that five-minute interval, would you convert? To this day, no one has ever told me yes. It's not that you can't. You don't want to believe, and no amount of proof will steer you from what you want. It's not a proof problem. It's a heart problem. Now, that might be true of some of you. You're not sure if you believe. And, and my friend, it's not, a, 
It's not a proof problem. It's a heart problem. You don't want to surrender. You don't want to trust God. You don't want to have a Bible tell you what to do. You don't want to bring your sin to light. Don't put it on God that you don't believe. It's on you. But God in his mercy has just shown you that. He has given you an opportunity to, to change, to come to the light, allow your deeds to be exposed, to be transformed, and to yield to him. But it begins by a willingness to embrace the truth. You have to choose to be positive towards the proof. And here's a great promise. If you're positive towards the truth, if you take God at his word, the Bible at his word, the scripture at its word, and you commit to it, your life will change. And should the Lord come back, or better yet, he, well, worse yet, I guess, he takes you home when you breathe your last. At that point in time, you will stand in the presence of the glorious risen Lord. And you know what happened at that point in time? For the first time in your life, you will be proof positive that it's all true. But to get to the proof positive, you have to have a positive disposition towards the proof. Yet be willing and eager to believe it. And when that happens, it will change and transform you so that you can do the same for other people. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you um, grateful for the teaching of your word. And, and we pray that we will believe it, that we will have a positive disposition towards your proofs, that we will have a willingness to believe and an eagerness to believe. And, and Lord, if there's anything in our lives that take away from that eagerness, I pray that you'll make it clear to us right now. I pray that um, the Holy Spirit will just point out that this is not right or this needs to change and that they will yield. We thank you for the wonderful assurances that we have that it's all true and we look forward to the day when we'll have a proof positive uh, faith where our faith will become sight. Sustain us until that day in Christ's name. Amen.